two dominant themes are running through our time this morning. You've heard them both already. One is the sovereign reign and rule of Christ. The other is the great refuge that that sovereign rule and reign can afford for the soul that anchors itself in him. Uh, Just before we dive into God's word, uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things, just sort of pastorally from my heart. Uh, I wish I could sit across the table from every one of you who's tuning into this and ask you personally by looking you in the eyes, how are you doing? Um, How is your walk with Jesus? How is your heart? How settled or unsettled is it? And we could just talk about those things together. As it is, I'm looking into the single eye of a camera and trusting that you're seeing my eyes through it. But the question remains the same. Uh, How are you doing? If you would ask me that question, the answer would depend on the day. So I imagine many of us have a similar uh, situation. At some level, uh, things are getting old, things continue to be confusing, and as we just sang together, we need to preach God's truth to our souls to anchor our experience as God's people in the greatness of his reign, because the world around us is continuing to present some challenges. I do want you to know that we are spending significant time, our staff and our elders and our other leaders here at the church, behind the scenes, off camera, you don't see it, but it's happening, planning for ministry this fall. Uh, Kind of the idea that's guiding us is that our environment has changed significantly and it continues to, but our mission has not. And there's actually some comfort in that. Uh, Christ has given us as his people a call. He's given us as Harvest Community Church a call to be a witness to the goodness and the grace of Jesus and the gospel in this community. And that mission has not changed. Coronavirus doesn't change that. Civil unrest, election seasons, nothing changes that mission. It does force us to think really differently about how we're going to pursue that mission. And on the one hand, that's exhausting work. On the other hand, it's kind of exhilarating work. And so we're looking forward to, over the next few weeks, sharing more and more with you, our members, as to how we're going to pursue ministry together this fall. What I can say right now is simply this. It will require each one of us who are members of Harvest Community Church to take perhaps even greater ownership of our own personal growth in Christ and ownership of one another in connecting relationally with one another, uh, perhaps than we have in the past. We're going to continue to seek ways to pull people together, even with our current restrictions, uh, to pull people together and create connections between one another. But it is always primarily incumbent on us to reach out to one another. And I want to encourage each and every one of us to do that. I'm not sure where you're at, like literally, physically, right now. If you're kind of sitting in front of a screen or a TV and fully engaged in this, or if this is kind of on in the background, or perhaps you kind of skirted by the live service and you're just catching it later. But wherever we're at, can I encourage you, if you're a member of this church, to engage fully with what we're doing here on Sunday morning so that together we can anchor ourselves in God's word and move forward in the same direction he's painting for us. And may I also encourage you that Many of you I'm seeing and hearing secondhand are are reaching out to one another. Maybe you're in a small group that's meeting or you're getting together with two or three friends in a socially distant way or you're just making a couple extra phone calls. And I, I know for many of us at the time that doesn't feel like much, but it actually amounts to a ton. And I just want to continue to blow wind in those sails. We are still the family of God at Harvest Community Church. And I love every story that I'm hearing of people who are inviting a friend or two over on a Sunday morning to, in a socially distant and safe way, watch the service together. That totally changes the dynamic and it creates a community, even if there's only a couple people together in a garage or on a back porch or together in a living room. If you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do that, to make those phone calls, to reach out, to connect with somebody in our church this week and just say, how you doing? Here's how I'm doing. How can we pray for one another? What are you reading that encourages you? Just catch up and just be in community together. We look forward to more and more ways to do that. My heart has been full of all of those things because I don't see or connect with most of you now the way I used to. So I'd like to just pray uh, one more time before we dive into God's word that he would have his way with us. Father, we thank you so much for calling us together as a church and we recognize that though your plan is that churches be together, uh, quite literally, that that's an essential part of what it means to be uh, a church family together. Right now, uh, we're not together as much. And you are sovereign over that too. Uh, Not only has this not surprised you, 
but it actually is part of your plan. It's something you've ordained. God, I admit, I don't fully understand why. You've given us just enough knowledge to know that you always have plans and purposes for when you do the unexpected. You are always in control even when the world seems out of control, and we don't always understand how those things line up, but we know that they are true. So, Father, I come right now confessing my own anxieties and worries and fears about myself, my family, the church, the future. And, God, I seek to anchor myself today in the sovereign rule and reign of Christ the universe's king. And so, Father, I pray that you would help settle my heart. I pray that you would help settle the hearts of every person who is tuning into this stream right now as we look not so much to one another or not so much to even government leaders or others who are in powerful positions to lead us out of this, but as we look to you, our king, to focus us perhaps more than ever before on your glory, on your beauty, on your greatness. Spirit, teach us what it means to walk with you to follow your lead and not just to invite you into our experience but to invite our own lives into your experience and what you are doing in this world god you have a city full of people you have placed us in over a hundred thousand people all around us many of whom desperately need to know that you have died to save them father god use us. Help us to see how we can reach one, how we can love and serve one, how we can love one another and thus display the truth and the beauty of the gospel, even in the midst of a pandemic, of protests and social unrests, and of a political election season where tensions are running high, optimism is running low, but your sovereignty is undimmed and unchanged. God, speak to us now as your people. And I pray that we would be changed for having heard you speak. So we ask that you would show us now wondrous things from your word for our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already grabbed a Bible, to take one and turn to the book of Psalms, uh, roughly in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 2. For the past few weeks, we've spent our summer Sundays looking to the Old Testament book of Psalms for ancient answers to modern problems. The Psalms were the Old Testament songbook of God's people. They are, they are worship songs. They are poems that contain great theological truths. They're wonderful teaching tools, but they were primarily designed to teach through singing, that these would be truths that God's people would sing to themselves and to one another and to God so they could ground themselves in who he is. And as such, the Psalms provide ancient answers to problems that humanity has always faced, including very modern problems. Their value consists not in their being ancient. Their value consists in their being from God himself. These are, these are songs that God is seeking to teach us, his people, to sing to ourselves and to one another, that we would live their truths. And so even as we walk through these psalms and preach through them and try to understand them, these are not purely intellectual exercises. We want to understand so that we can experience. And so I want to invite you to uh, walk through this psalm with me uh, devotionally, engaging the heart and the mind until the truth penetrates to our heart. Because that's the goal. That's the goal. We've said from the outset of this series that the Psalms are ultimately about joy. They're about helping God's people experience joy in the midst of anything. Joy in the midst of a global pandemic. Joy in the midst of a highly inflamed political season where we suspect one another's motives, sometimes for good reason. Joy in the midst of protests and civil unrest that particularly in our city just does not seem to be quitting and we become weary of it. How do you experience joy in the midst of this? Is that realistic? And is that an even, even an important question? I think the Bible's answer is yes. Yes. Joy, in fact, as we've been saying, is not only important, it's essential for a church that is seeking to serve and follow Christ. Joy is mission critical for us as Christians. Because we are people here 
who have been placed to experience and then convey through our words and our experience the truths and the glory of the gospel of Christ, that God is the most beautiful thing there is. And the love of God is the richest and most beautiful thing a person can experience. And if that is our message, but we are dour and unjoyful, we undercut our very message. The joy that a church, a group of people who have bonded together to be God's family together can experience in the midst of a pandemic and of protests and of a political election season is a testimony to the life-changing truths of God which provide joy no matter what's happening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, members of Harvest Community Church, when we are struggling, when we are worried and fearful and exhausted and experience anxiety, all of that is normal. It is a universal experience. But when we don't stop there, but we drive those experiences into the truths of God's word, ground ourselves in the glories of the things he has to teach us here in the Psalms and start to experience joy despite the hurt and the heartache, then our neighbors will see Jesus. And that mission has not changed. So with that in mind, I'd like to read Psalm 2 as we seek God's joy in the midst of particularly a political season. Psalm 2 is all about how humanity, how the nations rage and try to find a way out of life's problems apart from God and what God's response is to that. And finally, it closes with calling us for our response. If you've got your Bibles, read with me Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Can the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take their refuge in him. God, would you multiply the benefits of your words, your word to us now. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. This ancient worship song, this poem, Psalm 2, has, has four stanzas, three verses each. And in each one of the four, there are, there's a different voice that speaks. That's kind of the structural guiding point. The first stanza, the nations are speaking. The second stanza, stanza God the Father is speaking. The third stanza, the anointed one is speaking. And the last stanza is a call to say, how will you, reader, speak? The final voice is ours. And so we're just going to follow that outline as we go through this to see what God has for us. For the last two Sundays, my friend Matt Cunningham came and opened up a couple of psalms for us. Matt did a phenomenal job. Um, I was so blessed by what he had to say and what he shared with us. Uh, With one exception, he broke the inviolable Baptist principle and he had two points in his outlines rather than three. He did that twice, I notice. And so I'm now going to overcompensate. So this morning, rather than going to three points, I have four. And that's to make up for what Matt did. And then we'll be back to points of three, so we'll all be good. This is where we cue the laugh track and you all laugh because that was a joke. All right. All right, I got a couple people live here involved in the service and they laughed for me. Thank you, even though that wasn't funny, I appreciate that. Let's dive in. The first voice is the voice of the nations. Why do the nations rage? The psalm actually opens up 
with a rhetorical question. Like it's a question, but it's not really asking for an answer. It's more of a way of pointing out something that is ridiculous. Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? What is in view here is the entire human race. All of humanity, all of the nations, all of the peoples, collectively as humanity, our voice, the Bible says, rages. Literally, that means why do they gather noisily? (laughs) People get together and they're constantly um, venting their discontent. And at the end of verse 1, when it says, why do they plot in vain? The word there literally means why do they murmur? The picture is one of humanity coming together as a mass and giving vocal expression to our discontent. The Bible says as a race, it's like we are, we're just unhappy with the current state of things. Can you relate? Of course you can relate. Because every human being at every point in history can relate. If there's one thing that every person throughout history can agree on, maybe the only thing, it's that things are not the way they should be. Something is fundamentally wrong with the world. We are unhappy, and that's what this worship song opens with. It looks at the voice of humanity venting its collective discontent, although the discontent is aimed, at this case, particularly at God. God reigns, as the sovereign king and creator of the universe. And despite the fact that, that he made us, humanity, as the special capstone of his creation, a very, a very privileged position, nonetheless, we are not happy with God's reign as the sovereign king and creator of the universe. And, and this becomes evident in verses 2 and 3 when the actual voices of the people are heard. The murmuring is given shape by the leaders, the powerful rulers, and we see what humanity is discontent about. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, that is, they dig in their heels against, and the rulers take counsel together. We're, we're bonding together as humanity to stand against someone. Who is it? To stand against God himself and his special anointed king, who we'll hear more about in a moment. And here's what the collective voice of humanity says in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds, God and his anointed one. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The picture becomes clear, right? Fundamentally, humanity is not content to let God be God and acknowledge that he is the sovereign king and we are not. Of course, this discontent is nothing new. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible... Psalm 2 here is just picking up a theme that has been running ever since the opening chapters of the Bible. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3, literally the third chapter of the Bible, we've barely gotten off of page 1, where the very first sin is introduced. The serpent approaches Eve and says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the garden? Any tree in the garden, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but God said, don't eat of this particular tree. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the very first sin in the entire human race was preceded by the very first temptation. And the very first temptation that ever existed in human history was the temptation to throw off the bonds of God. To say that, that you're better off getting out from under God's reign and God's rule than you are by being under it. In fact, God's reign and God's rule is bondage. Back in Psalm 2, you notice that. Let us, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. It's a picture of being chained. God is just like tying us up. God is making us prisoners. We need to be free of God. That's when life will get good. We need to be free to paint our own destiny. This is the great lie of the Bible. As humanity, all people, we're all complicit in this in one way or another. We rage because we believe Satan's lie. And, And so we chafe under God's reign. We seek to get out from under it. Of course, not all such raging is overtly anti-God or anti-Christ. In some cases, it is. Uh, Like many of you, I I know and and get updates from uh, Christians and churches and missionaries who work in, for example, Muslim-majority countries, in some of which it is 
overtly illegal to preach the gospel of Jesus, and you can get in literal serious trouble uh, with the authorities for doing that. It's really obvious to see in that case that there's a government system that is directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus. That's not really our experience here in the West. But humanity's desire to get out from under God is not always that overtly anti-God. We can try to throw off God's rule and God's reign even as church-going, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving people when we pursue our own agenda, seeking success through our efforts, relying on ourselves and other people more than relying on God. And when we have a prayer life that amounts to asking God to make us better at living apart from him than we were before. That last statement was a barb directed at the mirror because I find a lot of my own praying reflecting that. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I, I feel my own weights and burdens with my family and especially my church in this era. What do I do? And I find myself immediately running to who can I rely on? Who can make me a better leader, a better pastor? How can I do more? And eventually, in my worst moments, I might think to pray. And my prayers at that moment are often like, okay, God, I know what I need to do. Help me do it better. And the whole time I have to wonder if God is in the heavens just laughing or shaking his head or both. Who's the savior of the church, Matt? Well, you are, of course. Okay, act like it. What does it look like to pray that I would walk in step with God and follow his lead rather than just ask God to make me effective on my own? Some of my own personal wrestling with raging against God. The psalm warns us of the natural human hell-bent tendency we all have to seek life apart from the reign of Christ. And I think that's a particularly appropriate warning during an election season like the one we're just getting ready to enter, we've just started entering. As if 2020 wasn't crazy enough already with a pandemic and with all of the protests and riots that have been going on, we're all now kind of mentally and emotionally stealing ourselves and bracing ourselves for a presidential election, a notoriously divisive and contentious activity at any point. For the next four months, we're going to be told the same thing that we're told every four years, and that's basically this. We're going to be told that this election will determine the fate of our nation of our way of life, of everything we hold dear. All of that is at stake this November. That may actually be the one thing that both political parties in our country will agree on. Both the Donald Trump campaign and the Joe Biden campaign are going to tell you the exact same things. This election is about the soul and the future of America that almost everything that matters depends on whether Donald Trump occupies the White House for the next four years. That message is a lie. It's not true. It just simply isn't true. It works when campaigns are trying to turn out the vote, which is, of course, what they're trying to do. But it's not actually a true statement. Psalm 2 reminds us that the fate of this nation and the direction of human history categorically does not reside with any one politician, candidate, political party, or even an entire electorate. The affairs and of, of nations and of history are subject ultimately to the reign of the universe's sovereign king. And when God's people can ground our hearts in that, our experience in that truth, not just that that's something we believe, but when that affects our emotions, when that affects our point of view, it suddenly frees us from the life and death urgency of an election. Now, Hear me correctly. I'm not suggesting that elections don't matter. They very much do matter. 
We're blessed to live in a representative republic where we can have a voice and, and we can and certainly should vote. In fact, if you're a member of our church and you're legally eligible to vote but not registered, I'd encourage you to get out and register to vote now so that it's done and ready to go by the time the election comes. Uh, political, choosing political leaders matters. That's an important issue. But elections don't matter ultimately. They don't matter finally. Actually, Christians are free to engage in the political process and vote precisely because our existential well-being does not depend on the outcome of an election. But how often have I felt myself feeling as if it does? I'm not going to lie. There have been times. There have been times. Fears get stoked. Hopes get stoked. And then the returns come in and I find myself as if my life depends on this outcome. Brothers and sisters, May we soak our hearts in the sovereign rule of Christ, our King, this election season, so that we don't become people who think our existential well-being depends on an election or become the opposite. We're so afraid of that election, we just disengage and we don't vote and we don't pay attention at all. Both are expressions, paradoxically, of the same thing. It's believing that elections are ultimately important. The Bible's telling us we can know better. Christ is on his throne. In this first stanza, when the nations speak, you hear their voice. The voice is a collective rage. It's a straining against God's reign. It's an insistence that it is up to us to form our own destiny, to map our own path, and to figure out the way that things should be. But the next voice is God's voice in verses 4 through 6. And we now see why verse 1's question is rhetorical in nature. In verse 4 through 6, God responds, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens, that's a picture of God on his throne, laughs. He, he laughs. He looks down at that, that raging mass of humanity that is pictured in verses 1 through 3, raging against him and seeking to throw off his reign, and he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get intimidated. He doesn't get confused. He laughs. And as if we needed the point made more clearly, the poetic parallel in the second half of verse 4 makes it clear. The Lord holds them, all of humanity, in derision. It's a way of saying like he just mocks. He thinks that's a joke. You have got to be kidding me. That is funny. It's as if, you know, when, when you're walking down the street, and you suddenly see a big, muscular, sharp-toothed Rottweiler, and he looks at you, and he tenses, and his fangs bare. Like, I've had that happen a time or two before, and there's this immediately, like, Ugh, adrenaline rush, and, like, the hair on the back of your neck stands up because you're like, that dog is threatening me, and this is not funny. On the other hand, I've had times where I've been out on a walk, and somebody's out there with, like, their little, like, you know, eight-pound teacup poodle, or their little chihuahua, and it thinks it's a Rottweiler. You ever had that experience? And it bares its little teeth and it starts growling and barking and yipping and like chasing at you as if it's going to run you off. And it is so hard not to just laugh. You're like, dog, I could punt you across the street and you would never recover. <laughs> Your ability to actually seriously harm me is so not non-existent, this whole scene of you barking and, and growling is just laughable. Now, when the Rottweiler barks, barks and growls, it's not funny because he could actually hurt me. That little thing can't hurt me. When God sees humanity's collective rage, he's like, there's the teacup poodle. That's really funny. <laughs> you guys think you're going to find life apart from me? You think you can throw off my reign? There's a little spice in this sauce isn't there? There's a little bit of mustard on this psalm. There's, there's some, some sarcasm, some derision on God's part, and, and maybe for some of us that's, that's unexpected. Earlier this week, we read, my family read this psalm around the dinner table, and, and I just threw out the question. I said, I'm not even sure what the answer is, but like, look at verse 4. Is that okay? Is it okay that God has derision for people? How do we feel about that? I don't know. What do we think? And we talked about it for a while. Our general conclusion was, well, it's probably okay if it's real. <laughs> it's, it's okay for me to <clears throat> kind of laugh at the little teacup poodle because it can't really hurt me. 
You see, this is a vivid and somewhat punchy description of who's really in control. And I think a big part of the reason that God made it so vivid and so punchy is because so often we feel like forces arrayed against God are so overwhelmingly powerful. Because to us, compared to us, they are. Compared to God, they're nothing. This this psalm snaps us out of our normal way of seeing and encourages us to look at history from God's point of view and anchor our souls there. What seems so big and powerful to us is nothing compared to him. It's laughable to even think so. Why do the nations rage? God is in control. So brothers and sisters, what is what's dominating your experience right now? This past week? What's dominating your thoughts? What's driving your emotional experience? Is it discouragement with the way things are going on in society? Is it fearful anticipation of how rancorous this coming election is going to be in the midst of a culture that's already coming apart at the seams and is sort of on on tinterhooks already? It's a very real fear. Is that dominating your experience? For many of our families, we're overwhelmed at trying to figure out how to semi-homeschool or homeschool our kids when we never signed up for homeschooling. Maybe we sent our kids to public or private schools because we never wanted to homeschool, and this is forcing us all to think differently. For school teachers and administrators, they're having to rethink how they do their very jobs. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of frustration. Those are real situations. That is a very real and difficult place to be in. For many of us, we're facing illness, loss, and disease. Things that may not have anything really to do with this global pandemic, but because we're in the pandemic, it makes it harder to process it all. What's dominating your experience this past week? It can all look so big. It can feel so overwhelming. But it's all just empty wind compared to the sovereign ruling king. Blessed is the man who takes his comfort in his refuge in that. This is the message God wants humanity to see. I'm in charge. (laughs) And that's bad news if you're going to continue to oppose me. It's good news if you will embrace me because I'm a God of love. I love you. I care. And so that's why verse 5 says he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. Remember whom he is speaking to and whom he is terrifying. It's these people who believe Satan's lie, that that, that God's reign is a bad thing and that we need to fight against God and reject God. God speaks in his wrath and terrifies in his fury. Why? Just to torture us? To punish us? No. It's actually to wake us up. It's actually to wake us up. In his book, Christ and the Coronavirus, John Piper puts it this way. In our present condition, after the fall, blinded by sin as we are, we cannot see or feel just how repugnant sin against God is. Piper's saying that we we may know that, especially for Bible-based Christian people, we know that's true, but we don't feel it. Piper goes on, hardly anyone in the world feels the horror of preferring other things over God. Who loses sleep over our daily belittling of God by neglect and defiance? But oh, how we feel our physical pain. How indignant we can become when God touches our bodies. We may not grieve over the way that we demean God every day in our hearts, but let the coronavirus come and threaten our bodies, and all of a sudden he has our attention. Or does he? Physical pain, Piper says, is God's trumpet blast to tell us something is dreadfully wrong in the world. Disease and deformity are God's pictures in the physical realm of what sin is like in the spiritual realm. God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury so that they wake up to see that life does not come from rebelling against the universe's king that only leads to death. Life comes from embracing the reign and rule of God. 
And so what is his plan? God shows, God shows his paradoxical mercy and goodness even in the midst of his wrath and his fury. Because if you just read verse 5, I don't know about you, but if I were to told that there was going to be a verse 6 and I wasn't showed what it was and I was asked to guess what I think would follow verse 5, God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury and what's going to happen next? I'd probably fill it in with something like, I don't know, but it's not going to be good for those people. I guess he's going to squash them like a bug and they're dead. He's going to judge them. He's going to just kill them. But that's not what he does. God speaks in his fury and terrifies in his wrath and what does he say? Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What? God, you're the sovereign king of the universe, and you're angry, and you're, you're justly wrathful against people who are trying to throw off your reign and your rule, and so your response is to not kill them. It's to appoint a special king. Unexpectedly, God responds to humanity's empty raging by anointing a human king with whom we must deal, with whom we must interact. Now, that may seem unexpected at first, but of course, again, it's not that unexpected if you're familiar with the unfolding storyline of the Bible. Once again, here, Psalm 2 picks up on a thread that is running all throughout Scripture. God's answer to humankind's sinful rebellion is to anoint, is the Bible language. It means he commissions a human savior who will deal with our sin and lead us back to him. An anointed one, the Old Testament term was a Messiah, God's chosen one who will deal with our sin. And that anointed one's voice is the third voice we hear. The first voice is raging humanity. The second voice is God's derisive response. But the third voice, now his anointed king speaks in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. This is now the anointed one speaking. The Lord, God the Father, has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten or become a father to you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. This is now God the Father talking to his anointed king. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. We learn three simple but profoundly important things about God's anointed king in these verses. First of all, verse 7, he is God's son. He is God's son. Though this is a, this is a person, this will be a human king who will reign and rule, he is nonetheless God's Son, he has a very special and intimate relationship with God, the Father. Secondly, he is not only God's chosen Savior, but in verse 8 it's clear he is a king. He is a king. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All of the authority that God himself possesses over the earth he created and everybody in it, he gives to this Savior, who yes, is a Savior, but is also the ruling sovereign king. And lastly, verse 9, all the world will answer to that king. He will judge, in the end, all who refuse to repent. Verse 9 contains a word picture that, that echoes the scene that was said in the first four verses. You will rule them with a rod of iron. The rod, just a picture of, of, of sovereign rulership, but this is not a decorative gold and fragile rod. It's a rod of iron. The hardest, strongest thing that they knew back then, it can't break. And, and you will dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel, like a clay pot. You take a big, heavy iron rod and you smash a ceramic pot and it's just going to disintegrate. Your authority over rebellious humanity is dominant. It's fascinating to think about God's Messiah being one who rules and judges so decisively because so often it does not look like God or his Messiah are ruling and reigning in this world. If you're anything like me, it's really easy to see to know in my head that God is sovereign over all things, I don't doubt that, but, but my heart, that, that, that does not define my experience. 
my heart gets very easily discouraged and very worried about the future because it just looks and feels like the world is out of control or those who oppose God are in control and God is not. That's how the church has always felt. That's how the very first church in all of human history felt. Take a moment, keep your finger in Psalm 2 and jump over to the New Testament in Acts chapter 4 where we see a picture of this worked out very vividly. The sovereign reign and rule of God's Messiah when it doesn't look like he's in control. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 23 to 31. To set the stage, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's now gone. Peter and the other apostles are forming the church. Peter had miraculously healed a man who had a physical deformity. Uh, He's, right after that, arrested for preaching the gospel. And it's important to note, in the context of the passage I'm about to read, he's been arrested by the exact same people who had Jesus executed. So they not only have power in theory, they've shown they have real power and they've used it against Jesus. They would have no compunction using it against his followers. This is a frightening situation. They insist um, that Peter stop preaching the gospel and Peter stands up to them and says, I got to obey God, do whatever you will. And for political reasons, they end up threatening him and then releasing him. Now, the passage we're going to read is the response of the church. They've seen all this happen. They've seen their leader get arrested, just like Jesus was. They've seen him get released. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, the whole church, heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, The one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Who's really in control here? The one who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and now they quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Messiah, his anointed one. Their prayer continues, For surely in this very city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let's pause right there. This prayer from the early church is intense. (laughs) That's powerful. Do you see the perspective that they had? They anchor their experience in God's sovereign rule, and yet the sovereign ruler, the Messiah, Jesus himself, who received all authority over kings, was put to death by those kings. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was shamed, and he was killed. Oh, if there was ever a time in history when it looked like God's plan was not being fulfilled, that things were out of control from the perspective of a follower of Jesus, it was when Jesus himself was killed. Everything came crashing down. And they're looking back on that now and they're realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. Rather than looking around and being discouraged at how things are going, we now recognize, God, even this is part of your plan. That your Savior King was to come and die first because he had to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and thus accomplish our salvation and be our Savior. So at the time, what looked to be so awful, even that you were in control of. That God the Father was sovereignly in control even when the world was rebelling against his son and killing him. And they anchor their experience in that because of this psalm. Verse 29, they make a request of God. Now, Lord, look upon their threats, these people who are arrayed against us and telling us to not preach the gospel. And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And the narrative ends, when they had prayed this, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the truth of God with boldness. How do you find joy in the midst of chaos? How do you 
continue to speak God's truth with boldness when it seems like you are powerless to do anything. You can only do it when your heart is grounded in the sovereign reign and rule of Christ, our King, even when it seems like all hell is breaking loose. God laughs. God was in control, and this all happened under his sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to make light of the reality of the situation we're in. I've already talked a little bit about how it's affected me emotionally just even these last couple of weeks. It continues to. This pandemic is big. All of the isolation and the non-gathering and the limitations and just a myriad of impacts, we all know it. We're experiencing it right now. This is huge. This is a big deal. The protests are big. The riots are big. These are important, serious things. Politics are big. Presidential elections are big, and they're contentious. All of these things are very big to us. They're nothing to Jesus. The God-anointed, sovereign king of the universe and lord of all history. Brothers and sisters, our environment has changed, but our mission has not. So that leads us to the the end of the psalm. Turn back to Psalm 2. There's one more voice. We've heard the voice of the people rage. We've heard the voice of God responding. We've heard the voice of his chosen Messiah. But the last voice is yours and mine. Verses 10 through 12 calls for a response. Therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Again, kings and rulers are embodying all of humanity that is rebelling against God. What are you going to do, the psalm says, in light of what we just laid out here? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Is that a contradiction? Rejoice with trembling? Trembling sounds like you're afraid. If you're afraid, you're usually not joyful, right? I'm either joyful or I'm afraid. Those two don't often go together at least not in our minds. The Bible says they do. <laughs> oh, when we fear God appropriately and submit to his rule and reign, then we will find joy. You can rejoice in the midst of fearing God. And so the final call, verse 12, kiss the Son, God's Messiah. That's a way of, of, of embracing him. You might think of, of the, a royal king and how some would come and, and bow before him and kiss his signet ring as a sign of bowing to his authority. Or in more of a Middle Eastern context, to embrace and to kiss. It's a sign of welcome, of submission, of I am underneath your authority. Submit to God's ruling king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, God will judge those who continue to rebel against him, but the psalm ends with a powerful note of hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The sovereign reign and rule of Christ is powerful, and yet it is harmful if we oppose it. It becomes life-giving if we submit to it. Or as one Bible scholar put it, when reading this psalm, there is no refuge from Christ. There is only refuge in Christ. So how will we respond? Friends, if you're watching this stream and you've not made a formal commitment of your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior King, the Bible is very clear. Eternal hope with God is available to everybody. It's available to you. That's why God didn't just squash us all like bugs in verse 6. He had a Savior King to put in place first. Eternal hope is available, but only by submitting to the rule of King Jesus. Eternal hope does not come from being good or even being spiritual. James chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible says that, that even Satan's demons believe in God, but that doesn't save them because they don't submit to him. They've rebelled against him, and so they have hell to look forward to. They're just punishment for all eternity. That does not have to be your story or my story. The Bible says, kiss the Son. Embrace the sovereign rule of Christ, our Savior, King, by repenting of your sins, including the sins of self-reliance and rejection of God, 
turning away from that life and turning toward him in dependence who died for my sins and was raised so that I might have new life. There you will find life. If you're watching this with somebody who's a Christian, I'd encourage you to have a conversation about that. Or you can go ahead and click that prayer request tab or call our church office this week and one of our pastors would be delighted to get on the phone with you and talk about beginning a relationship with Christ that will change your eternity. And friends, if you've made a commitment to Christ your King, but like me, you struggle to let that reality shape your daily experience, what do we do with the psalm? For me, I've constantly found this psalm this week leading me to ask, what is dominating my thoughts? What's causing anxiety or fear or pain? How can I meditate to ponder, as we saw from Psalm 1 a few weeks ago, to ponder over and over again the sovereign rule and reign of King Jesus, seeing his power as an iron rod and all the fury of this world as a fragile clay pot that he will one day shatter for good, and dwell there until your heart responds in hope. Because there and only there will we find joy, and joy is mission critical for us as a church. We can get frustrated and walk away or we can display Jesus in the midst of this pandemic, these protests and this political season when we experience the blessed joy of resting in the sovereign reign of Christ, our almighty King. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here and we're going to close our service with some songs that focus on the magnificence of God, our reigning and ruling King. I want to encourage you to sing these truths with us so that we can believe them and they can shape us. God, you have given us a picture of yourself that is awesome. And we seek to be a people who embrace that, who embrace you. And I pray that, that we would, that the members of this church would so embrace your sovereign reign and rule that it would shape our perspective, that we could be a people of hope and joy, not because we're any smarter than anybody else or have anything else about our current problems figured out, but because we are trusting you And God, I pray that for all of the people around us, of whom there are so many who are desperately looking for a solid rock for their souls, I pray that our joy that they see and experience when they interact with us would lead to wonderful opportunities to talk about your love and grace. Jesus, redeem people for yourself in the midst of this pandemic, even now through the members of this church. We pray in Christ's name, amen.